When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The Three Down Greencast is brought to you by the Pile of Bones Brewing Company, Regina's only downtown brewery. Well, it's an interesting episode this week on the Three Down Greencast, as once again, uh, my usual co-host, John Fraser, has decided to slack off for the week, and uh, we don't really know where he is or what he's doing, but that's okay as I like to think that this might actually be uh, one of the more insightful episodes we've ever had, and definitely probably the healthiest episode we've ever had with uh, <laughs> with my boy, Three Down Nations, who's pulling a, a double shift today, because I believe you recorded with Drew earlier today. Justin Dunk, welcome to the program as my co-host this week, man. Thanks for stepping in. <laughs> That's right, buddy. And on the health note, I'm drinking a protein shake right now, plant-based. Get it in you, but I'm curious what you got in the glass. Well, on that note, that's all we have for this week. uh... (laughs) We'll see you all next week. Goodbye, (laughs) Just kidding. For me, um, I spent the weekend up in lovely Nokomis, Saskatchewan, where they got a cool little brewery there. So uh, I'm on a little bit of a Nokomis kick right now. Uh, The Golden Ale, just a great straightforward kind of beer on a hot day like it's been for a couple of days here. A couple long, hard days call for just a, a great straightforward beer. So, uh... That's what we're. That's what I'm rocking today. Anyway, we don't really need to get into any further about what you're drinking because it's. We'll just <laughs> because you're stepping in. Well, I guess we'll we'll let that slide. Um, <laughs> it's been anything but a straightforward and clean kind of week for the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. As there's you know there was the game and there's all kinds of stuff to get to. You know, Zach Caleros, Nick Marshall, Jerron Carter, maybe even a little Jerome Messam talk. Maybe we'll slip a little time in for Johnny Menzel because I'm not like Josh Smith of Three Down Nation who tries to avoid that talk at all costs. I'm I'm not afraid of a few free clicks by bringing that up. So uh, (laughs) (laughs) we might get to that. But first, uh, we don't need to spend too much time on this, I don't think, because the game has kind of become the back burner, I think, after everything that's happened to start this week. But Dunk, just... Your thoughts on, as you watch that game, especially that first quarter, as uh, the headline on 3downnation.com so aptly put, the Riders barfed all over themselves. <laughs> it seemed like they did, and obviously the turnovers were key in that. But overall, my man, I feel like the Riders were in that game. Aside from that, it's so easy to say, woulda, coulda, shoulda. But you take away those turnovers, which you know at the best of time are chance plays. And the Riders being able to not go on to get blown out by the Stamps, which is what I think a lot of people probably thought would happen after they were down 24-0 in the first quarter, and the defense only gives up 
you know, 10 more points the rest of the way. And the team sort of had that mentality that they were going to fight all the way to the end, which is a positive if you're looking at the team from the scope of are they still battling as hard as they can for Chris Jones. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point, and Chris Jones certainly brought that up after the game, that he was proud of how his team fought to the very end. But I do wonder how much of that was, as from Calgary's side, when you're up 24 nothing after 15 minutes of football, it is it is pretty easy to lay off a little bit. So I still don't think you can give them that much credit, because for the Riders to win football games, there's there's no secret into how they have to do it. They have to play pretty good you know, ball control offense, eat up as much clock there as they can. They need the defense to win them the game and they need the special teams to be solid and maybe even ship in seven points. So when you look at that first quarter, they did essentially everything they can't do in order to win a football game, especially against the likes of the Calgary Stampeders. It was poor, man. And there's no getting around it that those turnovers did happen and the defense did give up, you know, were part of the reason for those 24 points, but a lot of it was the field position, right? They were put in a short field. The score could have been even worse. And there's been obviously a lot of talk there in Regina about the offense struggling, Joel. But I feel like the one factor that not a lot of people are talking about is Jarius Jackson, who was the passing game coordinator, now being in BC. And now you have Steve Walsh coming in. And the offense has clearly changed. And for me, you know, I got to defend my boy Brandon Bridge. He doesn't look quite the same since Jackson left. Yeah, I mean, I think that's there's that there's certainly time to look at that, and that that I think that's a fair assessment. But I think even last year, you know, the end of the season and walking into the playoffs and getting with into essentially a play of making the Grey Cup more or less maybe fogged some view of what we saw from that team last year. The offense wasn't quite as bad at times last year, but it wasn't good last year either. So it's not like this is an offense that's building off a great year and is taking a big step back. I'd say maybe it's a small step back. And to me, the issue isn't so much the game plan. I think there is there is good reason why this team should play a conservative, low, you know, high percentage kind of passing football, run the football, which for some reason they did do early in the year, but now they are. And that's fine. There's reasons to do that. There's a time and place to do that. When you get on 24 nothing after the first quarter, it's pretty hard to justify continuing that because especially against a Calgary Stampeder team who we know their defense coming to that game essentially didn't give up more than 10 points a game. So for me, the issue wasn't so much the game plan. It was just the lack of adjustments and... You know, that that just really what stuck out to me in terms of what they were doing offensively in that game. I would agree. And it seems like that they've kind of come in with that mentality. And I'm going to go back to it again. But since Jackson has left, that this more conservative approach mm-hmm. has happened, which we saw, obviously, Brandon Bridge have success last year. And Kevin Glenn at times looked really hot throwing the football. There were other times where he was ice cold, too. But... Brandon Bridge to me just seems like he's playing kind of conservative along with the game plan that has been going along. I was going to say with handcuffs on, but he just doesn't really seem to be that same elusive guy outside of the pocket hurtling over people like he did in Winnipeg last year on that sick touchdown run and producing a bunch of touchdown passes. And 
very few interceptions. He only has one touchdown pass in the season and three picks. But as you said, that kind of goes along with the game plan. So I was just surprised that, you know, at times they've taken their shots when it's been there and they haven't mm-hmm. forced it. And there's a lot of people asking, well, Bridge isn't throwing the ball down the field, but it's not just that easy to force it in there if it's not there. If he's throwing it in double coverage and it's getting picked off, it doesn't matter where it is on the field. So you don't want him forcing it deep. No, and we saw that the week before in the game in Hamilton. They had their conservative game plan. It was working to a degree. It worked well. And all of a sudden, they got into the red zone, and I think they were around the 25-yard line, and they caught the Hamilton defense looking in, and that opened up Neyman Roosevelt in the end zone for a touchdown, which essentially ended up winning them the football game. So it certainly can work. So maybe, maybe we're not giving Calgary's defense enough credit for not biting too much on coming in and making sure that, okay, we know we have the short game covered. We're just going to make sure we don't give them the long game. I totally agree, man. I don't think Calgary's defense is getting enough credit overall for the entire season. It just seems to be kind of along the lines of what you said, that every quarterback seems to have a bad game or struggles against them. But there's a reason for that because they've been so darn good on D and Calgary. And I, I think another issue that's going on with this team offensively right now other than the injury to Zach Kleros and Brandon Bridge kind of looking, you know, a little less confident out there because I'll agree he doesn't even seem to be as confident in his running game right now, which is weird to see because that's that was always the change of pace last year with Kevin Glenn was you had the statue and then you had the sprinter coming in, right? And this year we're not really seeing that with Bridge, but I think it's just, there's been a marked drop-off in the receiving core. Now part of that is because their best receiver is still playing defense until it looks like this week finally. <laughs> and then Naaman Roosevelt missed basically that entire game. And so there's the, the young guys that they had hoped would step up, the Caleb Hollies and the likes, just haven't. And so I wonder if at some point eventually they're like, okay, we need to start looking somewhere else because these younger guys who we thought were going to have a step-up year just aren't. Yeah, and one of the guys would be Shaq Evans, a guy that they – got from Edmonton after he was released among the final training camp cuts. I really thought he could be a guy that could, you know, fill in a bit of the role for Deron Carter. But I'm curious to see what happens going forward after they've activated Zach Claros mm-hmm. off the injured list. Because if you give Deron Carter back to the offense and Claros is there too, when Brandon Bridge didn't have that luxury for his four starts, that's a market difference. And oh, absolutely. it's really hard. Yeah, it is. And it's really hard to evaluate Bridge without one of the best playmakers in the league and no doubt the best playmaker on the Riders' offense. Naaman Roosevelt is super solid and he's great too. But Deron Carter is the guy that you're going to want to throw the football up and let him go get it. Especially when you're a quarterback who's known to have some accuracy issues at times and Deron Carter is the guy that makes the impossible look easy sometimes. So... You want that on your offense, and we've we've certainly beaten that to death on this podcast over the last number of weeks as this has gone on. But you brought up the important point now with the change in Zach Caleros, and that is probably now really the biggest news of the week was on Monday. We record on Tuesdays as usual. They decided to activate um, Zach Caleros from the injured reserve list, so that to me signaled right away whether they were going to come out and say it or not that he was going to start because all of a sudden his entire cap hit for the entire time he's been injured now counts. So to me, it seemed like, well, it was going to be a complete waste of cap space if you activate this guy so close to him being allowed to practice anyway. 
and then not play him. Well, our, I would totally agree, man. And our boy Drew Edwards is convinced that you can practice after four weeks on the six-game injury list. I'm pretty sure it's five. I thought it was five, but I could be wrong. No, I would agree. I think it's five. Eddie's wrong. So let's just assume that. So you activate Zach Claros, and I, I did the math, and I'll actually have a piece on this up on three down by the time probably this podcast goes up or most people are listening to it, that shows the Zach Claros cap hit wasn't as big as a lot of people think because his rework deal was $430,000, but 225000 of that was up front, which means 205000 was his base salary. Divide that by 18. It's roughly 11000 I think, an 800 and change a game. Anyways, long story short, without getting into too much mathematics the cap hit that the riders will have to absorb for bringing claros back is around fifty thousand. when you factor in brandon bridge's playtime incentives against that so brandon bridge mm-hmm. was getting three thousand dollars per start in playtime which would have equaled out to eighteen thousand over six games so it's about a fifty thousand dollar hit but the team going into the year would have already been prepared for the both of those players claros and bridge to play and ha- would have at least factored that into the salary cap. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's interesting though. I mean, that's not it's not earth-shattering money that's going to change probably their cap landscape at the at the end of the year, but it is a number, you know, if you say it's about 50,000, that's that is a little bit of flexibility at the end of the year if you do need to add, you know, a, a cheap American here or there and, you know, I obviously they would have considered the money anyway, but any saved money at any point is always good, in my opinion, at least. And it's, it, was just, it was just interesting that they did it kind of close to the end of his sixth game when especially on a short week heading into Edmonton. But it's, it, uh, I mean, based on what we've seen offensively, it, maybe it shouldn't really be that surprising that they're going to this well now because it, clearly whatever's happening with the offense isn't working. So now they need to try Zach Caleros, especially since as much as we talked about the offensive line earlier in the year, I wouldn't say they're world beaters at this point. They're not great, <laughs> but they have. there has been a marked improvement there. So maybe now it's time to see, okay, what will Zach Caleros do now that he's reasonably healthy with you know a stable offensive line, Deron Carter, Naaman Roosevelt, and you know, everything kind of in place to where it should be? Well, there were two factors that stood out to me in Caleros being activated quickly than most thought because on Saturday night after the game, Chris Jones was asked when Zach Claros might come back. And he felt like it was going to be potentially after the bye week, mm-hmm. which would have been one week before his six game stint was up. And the same week that the Calgary Stampeders were going to roll into town again in week 10. But in that span of about 24 hours, Caleros is activated. He practices Monday and then the second point that stood out to me was the fact that Claros felt like he had been ready for about two, two and a half weeks. So clearly, there seemed to be a push from Claros's end to come back and play. And thirdly, I guess I should mention the fact that Claros kept an injury secret that he suffered in the preseason, which may have compounded this hit against Ottawa mm-hmm. and ultimately caused him to miss more games. So all of those factors that went into this decision really are what intrigued me about it happening, as you said, Joel, quicker than most people thought. Yeah, and so, well, you bring up the interesting point of him hiding the injury, which we'll get into a whole other discussion about that in player safety in a second here, but I think 
So if a guy's pushing to come back and he wants to play, but he's also hidden an injury from you in the past, to me, that raises a few question marks and a few alarm bells to saying, okay, are you actually ready or are you just pushing because you want to play and you're a competitor? And that's, you know, that's great. There's a good side to that. But you did also lie to us about an, uh, an injury that you didn't have, which could have maybe been avoided if we knew in the first place that there was something nagging you. Because if you go back to that game in Ottawa, it, it was hard to point out exactly where Zach Caleros got hurt in that game, which makes it I guess, easier to believe that, yeah, okay, he was, in fact, keeping something from the medical staff at the time. Agreed, man. And it ended up seemingly being that hit that he took, and there was more just a whiplash reaction as to what Caleros called it. But I'm with you, and Caleros talked about the pressure of being a new guy in town, looked at as a franchise quarterback, obviously had the big signing bonus to go along with it. And mm-hmm. for as much as Chris Jones said it was a competition in training camp, Joel, do we really believe that? No, not for a second. <laughs> not, so, when not, when, not when one guy is making double the other, essentially. Like, no, no, that doesn't happen. Exactly. So Caleros probably thought after the injury he sustained in the preseason, well, if I miss time now and Brandon Bridge – starts the season guns ablazing and lighting up offenses, maybe I don't get back on the field. That has to only, that's only natural, I feel like, to enter a player's mind. Oh, 100%. Um, I understand where Zach Caleros is coming from, but, you know, in this new age, this new era of football where we're all going on about player safety and, you know, players are finally actually getting suspended for their dirty hits and there's these fines and all these new rules it still shows really now, at the end of the day, no matter how many rules that get put into place, no matter how safe the powers that be try to make this sport, it's still up to the players to tell the medical staff what the heck is going on with their bodies because you can't test for everything. It's not like it's a broken bone or a sprained muscle. There are certain injuries that you just have to be able to say you have to get over that level of machismo or insecurity or whatever the issue is and say, hey, this right now, it's not 100%. If I play, I'll, I could play, but it might get worse. So maybe we should look at this. It's just so tough as a competitor, man. I, I'm with you. For the ultimate health long-term of the player, you would hope that would happen. But I can't help but try to at least. I've never been in Clarence's shoes as a franchise quarterback, but understand what he was thinking there and that he just, you know, badly wants to be out there with his teammates. That's part of the reason mm-hmm. he was such a good leader and all the guys wanted to follow him in Hamilton was that sort of, as you said, macho man attitude that he can withstand anything and just wants to be in there. Yeah, as I said, I understand where he's coming from and this isn't a shot at Zach Caleros. This this is just kind of big picture talking about really the world of sports, frankly, not just football. It's, it's hap- it happens in every sports. It happens everywhere. And I think if pro sports is going to evolve, eventually they're just going to have to get over that. But speaking of evolving, it, the, I think the one kind of under-talked-about under move that's probably going to happen this week maybe is the, at least the impending return of DB Nick Marshall and how that finally puts that defense back into place. It puts Chris Carter, Chris Carter, geez, Deron Carter back on offense. <laughs> and they could use Chris Carter too, probably. But so it puts Deron <laughs> Carter back on offense because for whatever reason, Chris Jones didn't really trust anyone else to play DB besides his guys. So has his order finally been restored to this roster at this point with some of the other news we've heard this week? It could be if Nick Marshall is back. As you 
mentioned before, Deron Carter potentially shifts back to offense if that happens. But if Marshall's not healthy enough, and judging off what Chris Jones said on Tuesday, it doesn't seem like he's going to force him back. That that means that Deron Carter continues to play at DB, and it's still the similar sort of roster situation. But if Marshall comes back, Deron Carter goes back to offense, they essentially have their full complement of players. There's obviously still some other guys that are on the injured list, but for the mm-hmm. most part, their star guys are all, all healthy, barring Naaman Roosevelt playing, which it seems like he's going to be all right, on the roster. So you're going to get a real picture of what the team could have looked like for those first five games after Marshall went out with Duran on offense for hopefully, if your riders faithful the rest of the year. Yeah, and it certainly come, couldn't come at a better time because I think in this sort of six-game stretch where they're playing all Western opponents, which, as I wrote on the on 3 downnationcom will probably define their season, this little stretch. Are they are they a contender? Are they in con- contention for a home playoff game? Are they a bubble team? You know, what are they? We'll probably find out over the next, well, now five games. I don't think losing to Calgary is all that shocking, but... I, I, for there's a weird side of me that still feels like there is a shot this week against Edmonton. And if there's any stretch within the six, because I think really highly of Calgary, I think really highly of Winnipeg because of the Canadian depth they've amassed there. If there's the spot on this, in this bubble where they can, where they can make a statement that, Hey, this team is not going to be a pushover. This team is going to compete all season long and really fight for possibly even home playoff spot. They might have to win this game against Edmonton and do it pretty convincingly. And you nailed it right there with the home playoff spot. There were visions of that by the Riders going into the 2018 season. And if they want to have a shot at that actually coming to fruition, they have to get a win against Edmonton and potentially really need one against Calgary because you can't fall too far out of reach, obviously, with those top two teams. It seems like Calgary could potentially run away with the division yet again, which makes this game against the Eskimos, as you pointed out, the games against Winnipeg, massive. Because Mm -hmm. those are essentially, and it's a bit of a cliche, but four-point games that you need to have. And the Edmonton defense can be had. That has been shown this season. So if you can sort of slow down Mike Riley a little bit, and then you have Zach Claros, and potentially it seems like a Brandon Bridge tandem, according to what Chris Jones said on Tuesday, that they could both see time, which would be interesting because it almost goes back to last year with Kevin Glenn and Brandon Bridge in terms of the differences they bring to the field, that this game in Edmonton could actually be had. I'm surprised that they're nine-point underdogs, to be quite honest. Is it really that bad? Oh, It's a big spread. That is a big spread because what? Okay, you, you follow the whole league a lot closer than I do. And we were, everyone was really bullish on the Edmonton Eskimos to start this year. And they've kind of been a bit of a roller coaster up and down. There's some weeks they look like who we thought they were. And there's other weeks where they frankly don't. So that's why I kind of feel like this game is there for the taking, even though it's a short week and blah, 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 blah. Weird things like that happen in the CFL all the time. So what's going on in Edmonton? What's the deal with them where they're not quite what we thought they'd be so far? There's been a lot of injuries in the secondary to start with. Johnny Adams and Arjun Colhoun, their standout Canadian, you know, have been out for periods of time through the season. And quite honestly, the defensive line hasn't produced the type of pressure. And one guy in particular, Alex Bazzi, who they brought in in free agency and paid about $160,000 a year to, 
really hasn't done anything of consequence. So when your back end is banged up and you have a bunch of rookies playing back there, both Canadian and American, combined with the front end not really getting a lot of pressure, that said, the outstanding Canadian Kwaku Boateng had three sacks last week in Montreal to vault him up in second in the league in that category. But that's not really a recipe for success on defense. And there is this idea out there among coaches and scouts in the league as well that you can run the ball on Edmonton, even though Almondo Sewell is there. If you can sort of pin him down or put two guys on him, that you can create other lanes there. So I would look for the riders to try and get a ground game going because of that factor against Edmonton. So I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit then, I guess a little bit of a slam dunk preview. Do you think <laughs> that, do you think you said at nine point spread, do you think the riders at least cover that this week? Man, I do. It's actually been bet down to eight, which tells you there's been some money coming in on the riders since it opened at nine, but I'm all over the riders. Oh, taking the points that is obviously over a touchdown it's a much bigger line than I thought it would have been I figured it probably would have been in the area of you know four or five points given that home field is three when you're about even against that team but for them to get more than a touchdown against Edmonton on the road I'm not so worried about that it's the defense of the Eskimos that I don't have faith in and I really do feel like Chris Jones has a unique intel on Mike Riley. That said, Riley does too on that defense, but I feel like that could possibly help Jones more in terms of trying to slow down that Eskimo offense. Yeah, that, that's fair. I think it's not a surprise that the Ryder defense is going to be the key in this game because they're going to need to slow down Mike Riley. And But we've seen them do this before. They effectively neutralized Jeremiah Masoli for two weeks when he was looking like a early favorite potential MOP candidate. And then, you know, they ran into the Riders and Hamilton's kind of fallen into the skids a little bit since then. So this team has proven that even going up against higher high powered offenses, they can, they can get there and their defense can get the job done for them. So if they, again, I think if they can get in Mike Riley's kitchen, if they get in his kitchen, but also keep him contained a little bit, because we do know, that when he takes off, bad things tend to happen for defenses. So it's going to be about pressure, but also trying to contain him as well. So if they do that, you know, I actually kind of like their chances in this game. Yeah, man. And to be honest, I have picked the Riders a couple times when they've been big underdogs already this season, and they've covered for me, but straight up as well. I hate them, you know, straight up to win uh, – in Hamilton, and even the week before, I felt like it was just a good spot for them and there was too much line value. I feel like this is a legitimate opportunity for the Riders to go in there as freaking eight-point underdogs and come out with what we would call in betting terms a money line win, but a W in the column. So you, you talked about the running game and how it's possible against um, the Edmonton Eskimos. One guy we, don't, we know who won't be there and won't be running the football is Jerome Messam after... In a situation that came out of nowhere, I don't think any of us were expecting this. And, you know, the team did what they had to do. And I don't really know what to say about this one, frankly. It's just it's just a weird story that I don't really feel like any one team, I don't you said it, Calgary didn't know. Even if the Riders did know, I don't think they were at a point yet where they could really hold it against him, considering he hadn't formally been charged yet. So it was probably always looming that if it happened... 
this would happen to you. But until that point, we it's hard. I don't think an, empl- an employer should be able to put action against their employee before they've been formally charged of anything. So it's just kind of a weird situation that evolved. And I don't think you can really hold anyone to account other than Jerome Messam. Agreed. And one point that should be made is isn't until proven guilty. And Messam yeah. has said that he feels like very soon he wants to be found not guilty of the accusation and be able to continue his playing career. But to your point, Joel, the adult complainant came to police in April 2018 and Messam actually wasn't charged until Sunday. So he probably didn't even know about that charge until it was actually late. I don't really know exactly in a detailed way how that process works, but the Calgary Stampeders certainly had no idea about it. And from all I've heard, the riders reacted as quickly as possible, as well as the league did. Commissioner Randy Ambrosi saying he will not register a contract for Jerome Messam until the court process is played out. So they really acted quickly. I feel like that deserves some credit there for the team and the league acting quickly in a situation, as you said, Joel, that's really sticky. And to be quite honest, we'll see what the court process does for Messam, but it's just not a good look either way. No, absolutely not. And I I do think the league deserves a lot of credit. Both teams, everyone involved, did the right thing that they had to do in this situation. And it shows that the mechanisms the league have put in place over the last few years over these sorts of things is working. And that's good. It all comes into place very quickly. Player X is charged with, you know, these kinds of charges and it's done, it's over with. And there's, there's no, there's no gray zone. It's if, if basically you fall within this bracket of stuff that happens, see you later until you you figure out what's happened. Exactly. And for better, or for worse, the league is living in the now news world and, People, for whatever reason, and you know, I don't really understand it because, in some cases, the accused and in this point, players, professional athletes, are found not guilty. So, immediately when the charges come out, it seems unfair to me that right away, Messam is just deemed to be guilty. Let's at least let the process play out. I'm not saying one way or another. But let's at least let it play out. But now what leagues have to do is be reactive in that situation. But all it really tells me is that if you're a player, you just don't want to be anywhere near this type of legal trouble because it could be very damning for your career. Absolutely. So let's let's end this podcast on a little bit of a cheerier note than that. Uh, it was the news today that came out, which we were all kind of expecting, and it's the news that Johnny freaking football is finally going to start a game in the CFL. <laughs> Dunkster, you and Drew just must be, you know, jumping for joy at the thought of the clicks and the gifts and everything coming from that game. Well, that's to be determined, <laughs> man. We'll, we'll see how he played. No doubt, as I'm sure you are, I'm pretty curious to see how Johnny Manziel does. I do feel like, Joel, that this is very rushed and potentially damaging to Johnny Manziel's future football prospects that he's going to start so quickly five practices in to his tenure with the Alouettes he's going to be out on a field and Drew and I said it on the three down podcast today but the only quarterback in sort of recent memory 
to come right in right away and have success is Ricky Ray. And there might be some Winnipeg Blue Bombers fans that have their hands up for Chris Trevler. That was for a few games and he looks solid. But it's ultra rare and all the hype around Manziel is way higher probably than he can ever meet in terms of the expectations on the field. I Yeah, that's that's probably a fair assessment. But at the same time, you're the Montreal Alouettes, you got to do something. Not not that Vernon Adams played that poorly last week. I thought he wasn't great, but he wasn't terrible either. It certainly probably could be improved upon, but this is Frank, this is why they picked up Johnny Manziel. And we're obviously everyone around the CFL is going to talk about this from a CFL perspective, but I think from a Johnny Manziel perspective, this has gotta be, you know, finally a good moment for him because how long has he been sitting and waiting? to finally start another professional football game as a quarterback, even if it's not in the league he had anticipated and you know, once he was let go by the Cleveland Browns and that whole thing ended. But it's still got to be something for him to say, you know what, at the very least, I know I've made it back to this point and I can say, I'm going to go out giving it my all, no matter how this turns out. Exactly, and he's got the opportunity to potentially revive his professional career. We should say, since we're doing the greencast, that the Riders do have a connection to Manziel, right? They worked him out illegally <laughs> before he ever even signed with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Man, that just makes me think that how much more madness would there be around Manziel if he ever happened to make his way to Saskatchewan when this all shook down? We... Uh... There probably would have had to have been like an entire separate website linked to 3downnation.com to make sure all of the traffic went to there and didn't shut down the regular servers. We definitely have you on Johnny Watch 24-7, man, like a, like a PI, maybe private investigator or something like that. Oh, I'm glad that didn't happen. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.